Today's episode of Section 422 is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from the experts at GoToMeeting, all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, we're here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Find us on smart speakers or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen at gotomeeting.com slash tips. That's gotomeeting.com slash tips. These guys are barrels of fun. So I, 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 I'm responsible for yelling to be a brewer. I like that. I'm going to go with that. This is section 422. Oh, yeah, love it. Welcome to the Section 422 podcast, episode number 54. Derek Van Riper here with Will Salmon. On this episode, we will examine the January 2018 acquisition of Christian Yelich and the long series of events spanning 25 years that may have helped shape the trade that brought him to Milwaukee. Uh, A great story that you wrote, Will, looking back at this chain of events, a trade tree, which is kind of like baseball's version of six degrees of separation uh, in some ways, where you can kind of look back and see that transactions from several decades ago may still have an impact on present major league teams. Appreciate that, Derek. So for those listening, they know already that I'm new to the beat. And so some background on like why I even chose to do the story or how it sort of happened was... I was looking at just trades that I didn't necessarily like for the Brewers in hindsight. And so funny enough, the reason I even pursued this story in the first place or stumbled upon it was just I was looking at the Mark Loretta trade and I was like, wow, this in hindsight doesn't look too good because Loretta obviously became a a pretty solid player, two-time All-Star elsewhere. Was fine with the Brewers, had, had a solid career there, but just became a whole lot better, just transformed himself as a player. And so I was just kind of wondering about that. And I just peeled back, peeled back, peeled back. And so that's kind of how I got started. So funny enough, I thought of it as, wow, this is, this is terrible. <laughs> like, this is such a bad trade. Lo and behold, it became, uh, yeah, a lot bigger um, and better for the Brewers than I had imagined it would be. So we have to go back to 1993. And In 1993, the Brewers were playing their first season since 1978 without Paul Molitor. He had signed with the Blue Jays in December of 92 after a 15-year stay in Milwaukee. And 1993 was also the final season of Robin Yount's 20-year career. So, you know, with Molitor gone, with Yount going through his final season, I don't think Brewers fans cared at all about the draft in 93 as it was happening. And this was a team that went 92-70. and in 1992, but things had really started to take a turn for the worse under Phil Garner, who was then a second-year manager of the club. Sal Bando was a second-year GM, and 1993 was the first of 12 consecutive seasons under 500 for the franchise. There is no worse stretch in the franchise's 50-year history. 1993 marked the first year of Ken Califano as the Brewers' scouting director, And if you look back at that 93 draft, nine out of 65 picks that the Brewers made in that draft would eventually play in the big leagues, which if you start looking at Brewers drafts from the years that followed, is actually a higher success rate than you'd expect. Only three of those nine players who reached the big leagues produced positive wins above replacement value. That was 23rd overall pick Jeff D'Amico, 
26th overall pick, Kelly Wunsch, and this seventh-round selection out of Northwestern University, Mark Loretta. And I was just really surprised reading your story about this that in 1993, I mean, this was pre-commercial internet. Right? The internet was a military tool back then. It wasn't something that everybody used to communicate. Uh, obviously, cell phones at that point weren't something that anybody had. So Loretta didn't even find out the same day that he was drafted that the Brewers took him. That just blew my mind. Same here. Because you have to remember, like you said, this was a time where you know, we're not tracking where scouts are every single day where you see it online as it's happening. That was not happening 25, 30 years ago at this point. Um, so, yeah, he didn't know until about at least a day or two later when he called, I believe it was his high school coach, and he was just like, hey, man, I feel like I should have been picked by now, but I don't think or I don't know if I have or not. I haven't heard anything. And so his high school coach does some digging, and he's actually the one who finds out the fact that, oh, yeah, hey, by the way, the Brewers did draft you. They just hadn't gotten around to calling you yet. And so that's kind of a funny story. But what's also kind of amusing about that was if you were a draft pick for the Brewers in, say, like 1993, like Loretta was, there actually is some excitement for you because the Brewers are coming off that 92 win season in 1992. So you're not as it's not as if you're thinking like, OK, hey, I'm on the brink of a disaster here where I'm about to enter the worst uh, seasons of, of this franchise's history. It's actually if you're in his shoes at that point, one, you're happy to get drafted, of course, but certainly you're you're thinking, okay, this is a team that, yeah, they've lost some stars, but maybe I could come up pretty quickly through the system. And hey, they, they just had a successful season. So it, it's funny to think back and put yourself in his shoes and say, okay, this, this probably should have been a lot more fun than it was. And we look back at that era. We've talked about it before on our show, you know, the late 90s, especially kind of a lost era in Brewers history or a forgettable era in a lot of ways. We had the chance to speak to Jeff Cirillo, who was easily one of the best players of that decade for the Brewers, best in terms of war, probably just the best all-around player they, they had for several of those years. And it's strange because you know a player like Mark Loretta actually ranks 20th all-time in games played in a Brewers uniform. He was a good player on a very bad team most years that he was in Milwaukee. And he ended up finishing as the third best player based on war from the seven draft classes that Ken Califano had as scouting director. The only two players who were better players were Ben Sheets and Ronnie Belliard of the players that Califano drafted, which speaks to some of the problems the franchise had as a whole. If you're not drafting well, definitely they weren't spending money in free agency at the time. You're not going to have a lot of success on the field. Uh, So Loretta's one of those guys that if you grew up in the 90s or if you were just old enough to remember baseball in the 90s, you just remember him as one of their best players, but far from a superstar, just a really good player who had a, a good career. He ended up hitting 289 with a 355 on base percentage in 796 career games with the Brewers from 1995 to 2002, and he ranks 20th all time in games played in a Brewers uniform. So we saw a lot of him in Milwaukee. Loretta sends one the left, fairly deep, way back, get up, get out of here, gone for Loretta. And it's three to one. But he's important to this story because prior to becoming a free agent at the end of the 2002 season, the Brewers traded Mark Loretta and Cash to Houston 
for two players to be named later. It was August 31st, 2002. We found it a few days later on September 5th of that year. Those players to be named later were Keith Ginter and Wayne Franklin. And we'll get to them in just a second. So Loretta gets traded out of Milwaukee, and he plays his final game several years later in 2009. His total career in the big leagues was 15 seasons. He made two all-star teams after leaving the Brewers in 04 and 06. He won the NL Silver Slugger at the shortstop position in 04, and he actually finished ninth in the NL MVP balloting that year. Uh, And after leaving Milwaukee, he was on a couple playoff teams, the 05 Padres and the 09 Dodgers. So as Loretta's playing in Milwaukee, losing is just the name of the game, unfortunately. And eventually, Sal Bando's replaced by Dean Taylor in 99. Uh, Taylor's tenure as GM didn't go a whole lot better. Uh, before Loretta left, Miller Park opened in 2001. So there were some pretty big changes with the franchise later in Loretta's tenure. And really, for the franchise as a whole, there was kind of this pivotal moment that, at the time, people probably didn't think much of it, Jack Zarenzik became the scouting director in 1999, and that laid a lot of the groundwork for some of the changes that eventually followed. But the Loretta trade was one of the final transactions before the Brewers hired Doug Melvin to take over as the new GM. That happened in September of 2002. That was just a few weeks after that late season Loretta trade. So we go to the next part of this, and we look at Keith Ginter and Wayne Franklin. And Will, when I think of Keith Ginter and Wayne Franklin, I think... Those two guys weren't brewers for very long, and they probably didn't make much of an impact with what they returned via trade. (laughs) Yeah, or you just don't think about either of those guys too often or for too long, so maybe the thoughts don't quite stir up as much. But yeah, I mean, Ginter actually had a couple of nice seasons for the Brewers, and it's it's funny because I do remember him having some pop, hitting some home runs, having offensively some, some pretty solid, productive couple of seasons for them. But it's more important about both, what's most important about both of those guys, of course, is not the 15 or 18 or so home runs that Ginter hit. Um, it was what they got from both of those players, respectively. And I'll start with Wayne Franklin because his his aspect of this tree is different because it's so much shorter. <laughs> you know, you're only really getting the one the uh, the one player, and that's Carlos Villanueva from from that that aspect of the tree or that branch, I should say. And Villanueva is great. You know, solid, productive pitcher for the Brewers over the years. He's still in the organization, so he's an important piece uh, for them over the over the past several years. But the other side of that is the Ginter deal, and that's where that's what leads us to this long path of why we're even doing this episode in the first place. Uh, Ginter, again, you know, he's a useful player, uh, but the biggest aspect of his tenure was the fact that he got traded to the A's. In December 2004, uh, for Nelson Cruz and Justin Lair. And you look back at some of the teams again, Ginter and Franklin were there in the early 2000s. The trade that sent Ginter to Oakland happened after that 2004 season. Team's still losing. Like things are, are better behind the scenes. There are uh, signs of hope when you look at the farm system, but as far as the the big league record goes, and we're talking three consecutive last place finishes in the NL Central from 02 to 04. Uh, it's the beginning of the Ben Sheets era. Uh, Scott Pasednik had a year where I think he was the, the most valuable brewer. Kind of interesting times as uh, Miller Park was opening. The team was not playing at a level that befit such an amazing ballpark. But Ginter, he was mostly a second and third baseman for the Brewers during that time did have that pop that you mentioned and the trade the Brewers made 
to turn him into Nelson Cruz and Justin Lair really stands out to me. Not because Nelson Cruz went on to become a great brewer, but because Doug Melvin at least ID'd him as a guy who was worth trading for in the long run. I think that's pretty interesting. Uh, and Justin Lair, who another forgotten player in, in Brewers history, maybe because he he made 39 relief appearances between 05 and 06, eventually finished his big league career with the Reds in 09. Uh, but it continues this progression towards something very significant down the road. Now, Cruz was pretty good in the minors for the Brewers. He had 27 home runs between AA Huntsville and AAA Nashville in 2005. Got a little cup of coffee in Milwaukee at the end of that season. Eight games, seven plate appearances. Nothing that you could really ever look into and say, oh, this guy's going to be good. They just used him as a pinch hitter, essentially, with expanded rosters. But trading away Nelson Cruz later, even though it's important in this story, ended up being one of the biggest regrets of Doug Melvin because of the player that Cruz eventually became. Yeah, absolutely right. You know, a few weeks ago, I was doing some research just on, so like I said, I, I've just always been interested in deals, how they transpired, which ones in hindsight worked out, which ones were regrettable. So I was just doing some research, reading some old clips, and Adam McAlvey, who has covered the Brewers now for, what, what since 2001, so creeping up on 20 years here for the guy, does an excellent job uh, covering the Brewers for MLB.com, and he wrote a story that I had a couple of weeks back just on a regrettable move that Doug Melvin made over the t- over his tenure as Brewers GM, and and the one that stood out was that trade of Nelson Cruz, um, and it's kind of hard to kind of blame him in one on one hand, just because like you said, yeah, he did post some some solid numbers in the minor leagues, but I don't think people even at the time were like, wow, they just dealt this big time prospect. I mean, we're talking about a guy who was turned down or turned away uh, by not just the Brewers, but other teams as well. So uh, there's that aspect to it. Um, they they do, in, in trading him, they do get a nice little haul, though, um, with Francisco Cordero, Kevin Mench, and Lance Nix uh, from the Rangers. So it's a, it's a decent group, uh, especially for a guy like Cordero, who, who ends up having a, uh, you know, what, uh, at least a one good season, one great season, another good season for the Brewers, and be- becomes a pretty solid closer for them. So, not the biggest Kevin mentioned Lance Nix fans in the world uh, for for myself, but yeah, it's a deal that you want to have back. But hey, at least it extends the tree for us here. Right, it keeps things moving along, and it was disappointing if you think back to 2006 when. Uh, the Brewers made this trade. Carlos Lee was the centerpiece. Carlos Lee gets traded to Texas along with Nelson Cruz. It was Kevin Mench, Lance Nix, and Francisco Cordero coming back. The Brewers tried to extend Carlos Lee. That was something that I had kind of forgotten about that Adam wrote about in the piece. And I think he had the figure at something like $11 million a year was what the Brewers were trying to offer. Uh, Lee eventually got a lot more as a free agent. He didn't stay in Texas. He reached free agency that offseason, signed the deal he wanted with Houston, and was still very good for a long time. But the Brewers, you know, were able to turn him into multiple years of control for three different players. Mench was just never the same player he was in his first couple seasons with Texas. Like he was one of those guys that kind of peaked upon arrival and just never really got it back from there. His impact with the Brewers is very forgettable. From the time he was acquired until he eventually left as a free agent. He hit 256, had a 288 on base, nine homers in 141 games. Just a, a very 
nondescript tenure with the Brewers. Uh, Lance Nix only played 30 games at the big league level in Milwaukee. He became a free agent in 08, signed with the Reds. So at this point, it kind of just looks like the story ends, but Cordero was excellent in Milwaukee. He made the all-star team in 2007. Over parts of the two seasons he spent with the Brewers, struck out 116 batters in 94 appearances, and he pitched to a 260 ERA. But the problem here is that he became a free agent after the 2007 World Series. And it looks like the Brewers are, are just kind of just losing this trade in the long run, except for the old free agent compensation rules. I still can't believe this is how things used to be decided, Will. The Elias Sports Bureau rankings used to determine which players would merit compensatory draft picks if they were signed by other teams. And Francisco Cordero actually netted the Brewers the 32nd overall pick in the 2008 draft after he signed that free agent deal to go to Cincinnati. And that's how this trade tree stays alive. Yeah, it was completely on life support there. <laughs> if not for that, if not for that pick, and um, of course, Jake Odorizzi becomes uh, a pretty solid major league baseball pitcher. Had a great year last year for the Twins. Brewers never really received much from him uh, before they flip him. But just to go back quickly on Cordero, I mean, that's that ends up being the the, the key component here to keep things along and keep things on track and. They lost him in free agency. He becomes an all-star again for the Reds. Had a couple of nice years there, but certainly not the price tag, um, at least in my opinion, for, for what the Brewers were going to get there. Um, so they get uh, Jago to Rizzi. Um, that's also like at a point where like you would think that things would stop because I just feel like, you know, you get, you draft a guy like Oda Rizzi. He has a high pedigree. He's coming out of high school as a draft pick. So you think that maybe that's a guy that they hold on to, but with the way things were going down with the Brewers, they had built this great nucleus of offensive firepower um, in those seasons, 07, 08, 09, Ryan Braun, Prince Fielder, Ricky Weeks, the list goes on of the, of those great lineups, but they lacked the pitching and that's where the trade uh, of Jake Witterizzi comes in, Derek. Yeah, so 2007 was a pretty exciting time to be a Brewers fan. They went 83 and 79 that year. Losing Cordero in free agency felt like a setback, and, and getting a draft pick and, and using that pick on a, a high school pitcher who you'd figure is four to five years away from contributing at the big league level was understandably disheartening, I think, for some people. But 07 was. Ryan Braun's rookie year, and he was joining that crew that Jack Zarenzik had put together. Prince Fielder, Ricky Weeks, J.J. Hardy, Corey Hart, a homegrown core of position players, and they had just brought up Giovanni Gallardo as a rookie to pair with Ben Sheets. So they had an ace, they had a, maybe an ace-type pitcher that they thought was going to be a big part of their future in Gallardo. They had a great group of position players, and they were really starting to take the shape of a team that would prove capable of ending the organization's 25-year playoff drought. So flip the calendar to 2008. The Brewers actually get back to the postseason, thanks in large part to the in-season addition of CC Sabathia. And it was a pretty fun time to be a Brewer fan in 2008 as well, because the prospect depth that the organization had enabled them to make a trade like the Sabathia one, knowing he probably wasn't going to be in Milwaukee long-term. That was pretty clear from the jump that he was going to be a brewer for a very short time. There was a big payday awaiting him. 
But just to get postseason baseball back in Milwaukee was such a massive turning point for the franchise. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. In time! Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Yes! Sabathia! A complete game! And the Brewers beat the Cubs! Yeah, absolutely. But the problem there was that it was sort of short-lived, right? So you, you come off that huge high where everybody remembers what Sabathia's contributions were and how fun that was to watch if you were not just a Brewers fan, but a baseball fan, because that was just completely outstanding how he was able to put that team on his back throughout that whole entire month and a half or for however long it was. But then you come back next season after that, and it's pretty ho-hum. And then another year, pretty ho-hum so there had to be a change and that change that change uh shows itself in the fact of a a totally revamped starting pitching staff where not only do they acquire sean markham who was a a a very solid pitcher back then uh from the from the blue jays but they also go out and they make a blockbuster of a deal that excited everybody to no end and completely made the brewers a formidable in-your-face playoff team coming into spring training, and that was the Zach, the Zach Ranky deal in December 2010. Yeah, so you, you look back at the disappointment following the return to the postseason in 08, a couple of below 500 teams, com- competitive teams, but teams that didn't go to the postseason. And December of 2010, Christmas came early that year, if you're a Brewers fan, because the Markham trade happened, I think, on the 5th or 6th of December, and then uh, they add Grinky in this blockbuster trade. They get Zach Grinky for Lorenzo Cain, Alcides Escobar, Jeremy Jeffress, and Jake Odorizzi. The tree stays alive, and Uni Betancourt comes back with Grinky along with Cash as part of the deal. And this is one of those times where you you can see, like, okay, the core is in place, the team is making the right moves, pushing future assets elsewhere, and trying to max it out. And the Brewers go back to the playoffs. They win the division for the first time in forever. I mean, the the Brewers won the division in 82 when they lost in the World Series. And they didn't win a division title again until that 2011 season. Just a magnificent drought. And they get back to the postseason. And they lose in the NLCS following a 96-win season to the rival Cardinals. And it's just, it's the ultimate gut punch to get that far, to have this exciting core, to see it through, to reach that new level, to be that close to a World Series again, and to fall short. And to make matters worse, as great as Grinky was, and as well as that trade worked out for the Brewers, Prince Fielder left that winner as a free agent. He got that nine-year, $214 million contract with the Tigers. You know, there was another wave of, of being disappointed because it felt like that core in place was going to start to break apart. Yeah, and if you go back and you and you remember and you read the history of it, Antonazio was even quoted, one of his major lines that was plastered all over newspapers back then was, it was bittersweet because, yes, they broke that streak that you talked about, Derek, but also they just felt like there was more to be had from that season. And by all accounts, the talent was certainly there. And I think also the writing was on the wall, like you alluded to, 
with the fact that this wasn't going to stay intact forever. Um, and perhaps not even as long as a season and a half, we'd find out. And it just becomes a, a different type, type of Brewers team. To kind of quickly go back to that deal, though, should be noted that that deal was actually pretty good for the Royals as well. I mean, that, that completely changed their franchise a bit um, and, and, and got them to, to a pennant and beyond uh, World Series. So that's one of those deals that... Again, from this trade, like you could just keep going back and back like we are, and it's just striking the amount of not just trades, but super consequential trades for, for not only the Brewers, but other teams as well that were impacted by this and star players swapped. And then we get another one, of course, with uh, the Brewers understanding the fact that they're not going to probably in all likelihood they're not going to be able to retain Zach Greinke so they end up trading him in uh, July 2012 uh, for for a solid package uh, I don't know Derek you tell me what were your thoughts when, when that when that deal went down because uh, I'm looking at it and I'm like okay it's Zach Greinke and Zach Greinke would go on to have better seasons of course most most re- I mean he's it seems as if he doesn't age, or if he does age, he just gets better, or find way he finds different ways to improve, or or to retain his command year out, year in year out. But on the surface, that trade to me, uh, going back in hindsight and even now, it's I don't know. What were your thoughts on it, July twenty twelve? I remember being disappointed. I had seen Segura play in the fall league. I didn't think he was a shortstop. Uh, I thought he was clearly a defensive second baseman. And I was wrong about that. He played shortstop in the big leagues for a long time. He's just finally now in 2020 uh, moving off the position just because there's a really good defensive shortstop on his team in Didi Gregorius. So I was disappointed at the time. I don't remember being excited about either one of Ariel Pena or Johnny Helwig. And unfortunately for those two guys, they didn't really make much of an impact in the long run either. But Segura ended up being better than I expected. And the risk of losing Greinke only for draft pick compensation was very clear. The Brewers were not in a position to make a run in 2012. So trading him was probably in hindsight the thing they had to do. And it ended up working out pretty well because Segura exceeded expectations, at least my expectations. He uh, was an all-star in his first season, first full season in Milwaukee. And he served as the regular shortstop until he was eventually traded to Arizona in January of 2016. And the 2013 to 2015 window in Milwaukee, you know, with Segura being a fixture on that team, was disappointing, I think, because the expectations a few years earlier had become so high. You know, that NLCS appearance had all of us in the fan base just hungry for that World Series title. And taking a few steps back and you know, having two below 500 seasons out of three between 2013 and 2015 was a really tough thing to deal with. And the reality of the team not really having a core in place anymore to be a perennial contender, that was beginning to set in. And January 2016 is when the Brewers traded Segura to Arizona. At that time, it was just sort of a question of, okay, Orlando Arcia is ready to be starting shortstop now. So what can the Brewers do to bolster their roster the most in the long run. And I think this is another trade that was kind of underwhelming where they got back Chase Anderson, Aaron Hill, and a prospect, Isan Diaz, for Segura. It just it felt too light 
similar to the Grinky deal, but probably even a little bit worse in some ways because Anderson had a pretty extensive injury history during his time in Arizona. Aaron Hill was one of those guys who was really hard to believe in. His performance year to year was very inconsistent. And Diaz was such a low-level prospect that he was basically a lottery ticket. And what's surprising to me when I look at it now is Segura is still only 30 years old. So we're talking about a guy that was still, he's still right in his prime prime years, at that, especially at that time of the trade. And you could argue even now he still has some good, you know, at least probably a few good seasons left in him. But at that time of the deal, you're talking about a young player who could who has some versatility who could do some different things has, has shown the ability to be an elite base dealer rack up stolen bases hit for some power so i'm with you man um it was underwhelming at first chase anderson do, does of course uh provide the brewers with some some steadiness in their rotation because they were like you mentioned at a point where i felt like they had some a couple of pieces here and there, but they certainly lack that core and they certainly lack that identity of like, okay, who, who, what kind of team is this? And it was just that, you know, quintessential team that is right in between, I, I feel like two different sort of uh, front office groups, which would become, of course, you know, Doug Melvin and then uh, David Stearns, um, who is now obviously the, still the GM now. Um, but it, I mean, the, the trade itself, I mean, Anderson provides them a couple of solid seasons. Um, wasn't all that excited about the other two players in the deal with um, Hill and Diaz. Like you, I, I didn't think he would, um, I just didn't know enough about him at the time of the trade as a minor league prospect. He was just super young too. So it was like, okay, you're taking a flare on this guy. He, he may or may not become something. And you didn't know exactly what you were going to get as far as production from really any of them. But yeah, Chase Anderson was was the guy that uh, at least, if nothing else, provided some sort of a silver lining because he did give you some some decent starts, uh, a couple of good seasons for you. And the 2016 Brewers, I mean, there were big changes to come in that season as well. Um, you, know, you look at guys like Jonathan Lucroy and Carlos Gomez, and you see those guys get traded and as those trades were happening too, there was just this feeling of, oh no, here we go again. And you, you kind of feel that when you write articles about the Brewers. Uh, you've probably seen this in the comments a little bit. Um, there are still some scars from how bad this team was for basically a 25-year stretch where the the level of trust in the front office is probably not as high as it would be if that period of losing were shorter. And I think what we've really learned in, in kind of seeing how these things have played out in more recent years, Mark Atanasio is much less likely as an owner to tolerate futility for as long as Bud Selig tolerated it. Um, and that's not necessarily a dig at Bud Selig, but I, I just think there's a there's a competitive undertone to the way the team has been run since Atanasio bought it. And that was missing for a very long time. And I think that is why, in my mind, things will always be evaluated from a more optimistic lens as opposed to a more pessimistic lens when it comes to uh, trying to push through a cycle of maybe not being as competitive. I agree. And I, and I also will double down on the idea that you know, Stearns deserves the benefit of the doubt. He, he, sure, everybody 
in that seat will make a fair share of questionable moves or, or just moves that don't pan out because we're not privy to all the internal information that they have. And sometimes we don't um, have that benefit to sort of really have the scope of understanding why or the exact intention. We do our best to to guess and and more often than not, we could kind of read between the lines, of course, with it, just like anybody else. But point is, is that he he's deserved that benefit of the doubt. And the biggest one, the biggest reason, no question about it, is the Yelich trade. And without Stearns, I, you know, Christian Yelich, I don't think is is here. I don't know. I don't. I don't know, man. How many different GMs make that move at that time? It's it's pretty. I feel like it's still pretty bold to trade four guys for one like that when you are a team like the Brewers that, you know, when you go all in, you have to hit. Because if you if you're if you don't, if you miss here, you're you're done for a while, I feel like. Yeah, it's a, it's a higher risk trade than you would think when you look at it now. I think you have to put yourself back into 2018, that offseason. I mean, they signed Lorenzo Cain within a day of trading for Yelich. It's completely changing the makeup of the everyday lineup. And baseball has become so aggressive with how the league values controllable young talent that you could look at a trade like the one the Brewers made to get Yelich, which was Lewis Brinson, Monty Harrison, Isan Diaz, and Jordan Yamamoto, four for one to get Yelich. And you could say they gave up over 20 years of control combined of four players. And you know Brinson and Harrison are very toolsy very toolsy outfielders who could be stars if it all aligns and should at least play in the big leagues for several years at a minimum. Diaz was a prospect on the rise at the time of the trade, and Yamamoto, a controllable pitcher, uh, it just seems like is worth more now than ever before in baseball history. So it, it looks funny now to look at it and go, oh yeah, that may have been a lot because of how good Christian Yelich has become. And I just wonder, like, did anybody, did David Stearns, did anybody in the Brewers front office see this ceiling for Christian Yelich? They acquired him for a reason. They saw a lot of potential, and they saw a player who signed a very team-friendly contract that was going to keep him in Milwaukee for a long time prior to his more recent extension. Uh, but it's just one of those amazing things that you look back on and say, at the time, there probably were some smart people who didn't like that trade for the Brewers because they believed that a combination of those four players would actually be very impactful in the long run. And it still could happen, but it would take so much for the Marlins to look like they even got a fair trade in the long run because of just how good Yelich has been through two seasons with the Brewers. Yelich a drive. Left center field. It is gone! And because it's already been those two seasons, and I hate to say that with four younger guys like that, because just like Yelich, they could find another level to their respective games, right? I mean, that's certainly possible, not to the extent that Yelich has, of course, but room to grow, that's the point. And all four of those guys certainly have it, uh, toolsy and all. But yeah, it's you mentioned the idea of Yelich just smart people in the organization, whether they knew that Yelich would be a uh, MVP candidate post two of the best seasons all time in Brewers history. 
um, right up there with what Yance 1982, uh, <laughs> bronze 2011, 2012. I mean, Yelich is probably if he, if it's not number one, number two, it's between one and three. Um, those two seasons that he's produced so far, I'm not quite sure I will ever buy the idea that they would go as far as to say they expected quite that much from him, but certainly a different level of production. Yeah, I could get down with that line of thinking, but it's also worth pointing out that there were probably people in that organization that saw those four prospects too and said, okay, yeah, they're they're highly rated here and there in different publications and by different people, but for whatever reason, we're not quite sold. We're not quite sold on whatever it is because it's been two years and we haven't seen much of anything from from any of those guys. Yeah, and we'll see what 2020 especially brings in 2021. I think that'll give us a pretty complete view of where Brinson and Harrison and Diaz and Yamamoto are, are likely to go in the years ahead. But uh, a pivotal trade, of course, for the Brewers. And amazing when you trace it back through the tree to see that in some ways it began with the seventh round selection of Mark Loretta in 1993 and in all reality we can look at this and say there were probably other players in the Brewers system that they could have popped into this trade in place of Diaz and still likely made the deal but you never know sometimes uh you know the opposing GM sees a package and it has to be exactly what the deal was to actually get done so probably the kind of thing that we could ask a question like that now and we might not get a perfectly clear answer but someday we might know that Isan Diaz was more important to getting this deal done um, than any of the players. That could easily be a possibility. Uh, but Will, was there anything else that caught your eye as you were looking back through this uh, this trade tree? Because I noticed there's there's still uh, one little branch that's still alive right now. I don't really expect it to go anywhere. But Chase Anderson, who was traded this offseason to Toronto did bring back a player. Uh, so, you know, Chad Spanberger is still part of this tree as well. Yeah, man, and he had a, a nice spring training. So, <laughs> who knows? Uh, po- possibly. But what's... First First of all, this is... For people who are wondering, this is actually the oldest current Brewers trade tree. There isn't anything that predates the 1993 trade tree from Mark Loretta. So that's this is the oldest one. But also what I found pretty amusing was Loretta almost destroyed it two years ago. If you recall, the Padres were one of those teams, um, along with the Brewers, who were, who were very much tied in rumors um, and just different reports tying them to acquiring possibly Christian Yelich. And Mark Loretta was part of that front office with San Diego in 2018. He's now with the Cubs, served as their bench coach last year, and remained with the Cubs um, in their front office for 2020. But in 2018 and and late 2017, um, say like December 2017, um, he was part of the Padres front office. And he, in all seriousness, said to me, we felt like we had the better package. It just didn't happen. So kind of a funny twist there that he could have actually destroyed this this glorious trade tree of his. <laughs> With Yelich signing that long-term extension, it goes 
uh, very far into the future. We don't really know when this one will come to a complete end, but uh, that's the exciting part about these. You know, they can go on for 25, 30 years or possibly longer. Uh, you can find Will on Twitter, at Will Salmon. Check out the article. We'll link it in the description for the show. Uh, maybe you've seen it already. I'm Derek Van Riper on Twitter. And again, you can get a subscription to The Athletic at theathletic.com slash 422 to get 40% off. If you want a 90-day free trial before signing up, you can get that at theathletic.com slash free 90 days. If you got questions for us that you'd like us to answer on a future episode, you can send those our way via Twitter. Uh, if you are enjoying this podcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any platform that allows you to rate and review it, please take a moment to do that. We greatly appreciate it. And tell your friends if you think they would like the show as well. Hopefully we can uh, bridge the gap to the time when baseball is back again at some point in the weeks ahead. For Will Salmon, I'm Derek Van Riper. Thanks for listening. We're back with you next week from Section 422.